and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a uh, podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Matthew Bruckner, Associate Professor of Law at uh, Howard University School of Law. My guest today is uh, Anthony Michael Kreis, Visiting Assistant Professor of Law at Chicago Kent College of Law, where he is also an affiliated faculty with the Chicago Kent Institute for Law and the Workplace. Welcome back back to Ipsa Dixit. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining. Um, so I was uh, really excited uh, that you were going to be my first uh, interview uh, subject. Um, uh, we met some time ago at, I think it was the um, um, Richmond Junior Faculty Forum um, and been sort of following your, your stuff, even though it's a, a little bit outside of what I usually work on. Um, but so I just wanted to um, talk with you about uh, your article, Defensive Glass Ceilings, which is, I understand, forthcoming in the George Washington Law Review. It is, yes. All right. Um, so can you talk to me a little bit about the article, maybe, um, you know, how this one fits with your larger um, research agenda, why this particular topic? Yeah. So, um, so a lot of my research recently um, has been on Title VII issues, and particularly, or in particular, uh, about issues of of sex and sexuality um, and and gender in the workplace, um, and and it fits. This particular piece um, was something that came out of some of the responses I saw from uh, you know the corporate sphere to Me Too, and a part of my broader research agenda beyond just uh, employment law or, or employment discrimination is the idea or is uh, to study law and social movements. So this piece in in a lot of ways is the marriage of both my very, you know, like my 40,000 foot level uh, academic uh, agenda. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, the confluence of a number of different uh, areas of interest to me in the employment context. So, um, so, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, you know, the, the, Initial motivation for the article, though, you know, I, I, what, I guess it was maybe a year and a half ago now, maybe almost two years ago, um, when news reporters began to talk about Mike Pence um, and the vice president's so-called uh, Pence rule, uh, which was the vice president's uh, rule when he, when he was a member of Congress that he wouldn't socialize with women who were his employees. He wouldn't let female staffers work late with him. And so there were a whole lot of restrictions that he placed on on women in, in his congressional office. And that struck me as being just viscerally wrong um, as a kind of moral uh, perspective. But of course, I also had a, a, you know, Title VII concerns. Um, and this was at the same time that I had been kind of just just thinking about this earlier case from from the Iowa Supreme Court, uh, which dealt with the you know spousal jealousy, and there was another case in New York that was percolating in the New York State court system that had to deal with some form of spousal jealousy and you know attractiveness in the workplace, and so all these kinds of you know all these cases and then the Me Too movement. Um, right. Everything just kind of lined up in a perfect storm, uh, for me at least, where I thought, well, you know, there's something bigger here, right? There's a, there's an article to be written about how these seemingly disparate pieces, um, of litigation and, and, you know, the social movement, how it all fits together. So that's, that's why I decided to write the article. 
Right. No, I, I agree. This was a really interesting topic. I remember the uh, the sort of hue and cry about um, the sort of uh, the Pence rule or the Pence Graham rule because uh, you sort of attach it to not just uh, Mike Pence, um, but um, uh, right. So, I, and, I, and I thought that the article sort of did a good job sort of pulling together the, these different strands that you sort of talk about. But um, could you sort of maybe just take a moment to sort of summarize like the, the thesis that uh, emerges from this article when you pulled it all together? Yeah. So, so I, so there's three different types of discriminatory um, workplace practices that I looked at, um, and. The, the the bottom line is uh, whether it's attractiveness, whether it's you know kind of an associational based form of discrimination, or whether it's a workplace rule of engagement like the Pence rule, um, that any kind of workplace practice that segregates women out um, and and essentially marks women for second class status um, in this way uh, is a is a unlaw should be deemed an unlawful practice, right? That that we should see these things as not disparate kinds of of work pra- workplace practices, but we should see it as a systemic form of gender policing and gender discrimination. Um, and ultimately, what they what, the reason why they are unlawful is because they are a structural form of discrimination that women in particular. Because women use social networking, um, like men, to advance in their careers, that when people police women and try to keep them away for whatever reason, whether it be some kind of individual um, concern about liability or whether it be spousal jealousy or whether it be because a man thinks he can't have an attractive uh, female in his office – um, that all these things prevent women from enjoying uh, you know, a, a, a positive career trajectory, and the law needs to step in and call all of these things sex discrimination and um, right permit employees who are discriminated against with these kinds of practices um, to pursue lawsuits. Great. So yeah, I. I'm curious because um, you do certainly, uh, I think, um, center the article on women, and even, I mean, certainly the title "Defensive Glass Ceiling" sort of um, um, is um, sort of uh, evokes the idea of sort of um, um, you know women sort of not being able to sort of um, achieve the um, the upper reaches of, of management and like, um, and and now you're positing that it's because uh, men are sort of um, not letting them sort of network and whatnot for a variety of reasons. Uh, you do at some point talk about sort of um, work spouse relationships um, and uh, and suggest that, uh, that work spousal relationships are um, not just sort of between the genders, uh, but are sometimes sort of male-male or female-female. Uh, and it, it struck me and, and Please correct me if I'm wrong. That um, that at a time you're talking about sort of that um, management's concern about these sort of um, platonic workplace relationships uh, sometimes drove um, some of these sort of defensive glass ceilings that you're talking about. Uh, but in some of these cases, that it, it struck me that it was, but um, this this sort of issue potentially related to um, discrimination against men as well. So is, is is the concern you have purely about women, or is that just a um, is that sort of you know the sort of I don't know the motivating force, but it does have broader applicability? Yeah, so it certainly has broader applicability. Um, 
right? So if, for example, a man uh, discriminates against uh, another man because, uh, you know, he's in a same-sex uh, marriage um, and his spouse is jealous and that causes some kind of adverse employment action, that, of course, should be uh, actionable under Title VII. So there's a case from 1998 um, called Oncal where the Supreme Court essentially held that same-sex harassment is actionable because it is still because of sex, right? So, so the same principle applies here. The reason why I often frame it as an issue of women being, you know, women's careers being depressed as a result of, um, right, these kinds of defensive employment practices is because more often than not, um, they're, they're only permitted or they, they can only happen in environments where, um, the, the labor market or the, the workplace environment is male dominated already. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why that dynamic, uh, often happens. There's also an issue here of kind of a compulsory, uh, heterosexuality, which I think is also interesting, particularly in the Pence rules, right? So the idea that, uh, you know, if a man says, well, I won't engage with women socially or at, you know, late night hours, or I won't travel with a woman uh, alone for work, um, right. There's this idea that, <laughs> right, that, that the man must ha- has that the woman must have some potential to be sexually attracted to him, right? So there's that dynamic, which is also interesting. Um, you know, but a, again, a lot of these things, uh, the reason why they're phrased the way they are is because that's how the power dynamics tend to play out. But again, uh, when, when a same sex dynamic is present, that's not prohibitive, um, of, of, plaintiffs who are discriminated against because of their sex to bring those claims forward. Yeah, certainly. That's, uh, that's how I understood the article. Uh, but as you say, the sort of the way it's sort of uh, couched and, you know, especially the, the title sort of evokes the sort of idea of sort of, you know, um, uh, men sort of um, uh, keeping women out of, uh, out of potential interactions. Uh, but that, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Right. And, um, and the, the interesting yeah. thing here too, right, is a lot of this goes back to this ni- the mid-1970s uh, modern feminist literature on employment discrimination and, and sexual harassment. And one of the things that I f- find so interesting and telling from that literature, which applies here, is that particularly where the numbers of, of, of women in a particular workplace are, are small, uh, right? So you don't have a huge number of women in, in that particular workplace environment. Those are the kinds of environments where sex stereotypes are are much more likely to be used against women where these kinds of tokenism um you know st- uh, stereotypes will be uh, particularly acutely felt uh by female employees and and we see that at least anecdotally in some of the environments that these defensive glass ceilings are being um, you know, are, are being erected, right? So a lot of, you know, it's law firms and Wall Street and, uh, political offices. So it's really interesting that the, that the kinds of structural barriers that women, uh, writing in the 19, mid 1970s and 1980s were concerned about are manifesting in those exact same kinds of environments that they weren't, that they would manifest, um, right? Even now in 2018, 2019. And so why do you think that is uh, that, you know, I, you know, I think law firms uh, in particular, I mean, I'm maybe just more familiar with them, um, have been um, 
least ostensibly trying to make the, uh, the workplace more welcoming to women, um, um, to have uh, women sort of um, stay on, to um, promote them, to uh, and but you're, you're suggesting that um, that um, they are amongst you know, the sort of most challenging environments in terms of sort of these um, defensive glass ceilings and sort of the lack of sort of mentoring opportunities. So, um, do you have any thoughts as to why 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 these particular workplaces are, are um, sort of suffer the most uh, from what you're talking about? Yeah. So so there's two interesting issues here, right? One, you have uh, a question of of recruiting um, and getting women in the in the door in the first place, and then there's the issue of um, you know retention, and you know I think that a lot of these companies have done a much better job recruiting women, recruiting diverse candidates to come and work for them. Uh, where they have maybe been less successful is you know keeping them there. And, um, you know, particularly law firms and Wall Street, these are very high stressful environments and it's hard to keep any, right? It's, it's hard to keep a, a lot of their employees mm-hmm. and their talent is, is probably easily lost. Um, my suspicion is, is that they just have not done as good of a job, uh, as a general matter, trying to keep women and other diverse candidates there. Um, part of the issue I suspect, and this is again, something that I'm, I'm not exactly sure of, but it's, I, my, I, my gut says, um, that it's, you know, it's really hard when there's these kind of old boys clubs that mm-hmm. still run the show, sure. um, to try to pull yourself through the ranks and really get, you know, work your way up that, that ladder. Um, when those opportunities, which many of which are social um, are are kept away from women and and LGBT people too, um, and so you know if you don't see your career going somewhere right, um, you may choose to leave and find somewhere else where you're more valued. Uh, so so I think that's that's really a lot of what's going on here. It's 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 organizational culture, um, it's organizational structure. And, um, you know, these, these businesses and companies and firms just simply need to do a better, a better job of recognizing that it's not about just recruiting, getting people in the door, but it's about keeping them there, making them feel welcomed and, um, really appreciating the value and talent that all their, you know, all their employees bring. I think that's, that, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a believer that um, as soon as you realize you don't want to be your boss, uh, that it's time to leave and to try to find a job where you might want to sort of move up. Um, and I think what you're suggesting is that um, that um, women um, sort of perhaps don't see themselves um, taking on these roles in part because there are no uh, or are very few women in the sort of upper management. Um, and to the extent that there have been inroads in sort of recruiting, it may be that this sort of, you know, old boys network, as you're suggesting, is sort of um, giving a fig leaf to um, diversity, whether it's sort of gender or racial or um sexual orientation or otherwise, um, but they're not investing the resources in retention. But again, I find that interesting too, because, um, you know, uh, my sort of understanding uh, is that it is expensive to um, recruit um, and um, you know, bring on board, say, new lawyers. And um, uh, if they don't stay for a while, then um, then that's not clearly a good investment um, uh, in the, the, re- the recruiting phase, at least, um, and so, um, but perhaps that's just because um, they're sort of making overtures to um, 
to recruit, but they're not really committed to a more um, diverse workplace. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's so important, right? And 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 again, some some companies and firms and 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 like have done a you know, a, a good job at least of being on right, uh, to, at least at some superficial level uh, concerned about issues of diversity and inclusion. Um, but of course, you know, we, we we've seen the data where you know a large percentage of women have you know, said that they've been sexually harassed, for example, in the workplace. So that suggests to me that there's still something deeply, right, and culturally uh, problematic about these organizations. And until those issues are fundamentally addressed beyond, right, some of the kind of niceties, uh, you, know, if, you know, for example, a lot of a lot of firms will, will have things for pride and, and they'll promote LGBT issues. But if if LGBT employees are are not comfortable every day, then those right those events in the month of June are somewhat meaningless to those employees. Right, it's a nice gesture, but it doesn't make up for the fact that they may not feel safe or comfortable or or appreciated at work on a day to day basis. So so yeah, I think that's that's an you know addressing these issues, the root issues, in a very fundamental way is important. All right, so you know right. Um you're uh, you're sort of emphasizing that there's a, a problem, but of course your article is also about uh, how to address this problem. So can you talk a little bit about um, the various uh, aspects of Title VII that um, that have been used before and um, the sort of uh, where they haven't been successful, and uh, uh, and your suggestion about um, um, how to um, to uh, bring about sort of change and to eliminate these defensive glass ceilings. Yeah. So. Um so I, I think there's a couple of issues. The, the first one, if we just tackle the Pence rule um, for a second. Now, the Pence rule is interesting that I, I often refer to it as that because that's what people talk about it now. Um, but for decades before, people talked about it as the Graham rule, right, um, which was a, a reference to Reverend Graham having a similar rule for himself. Um, and that, that dates back to the 50s and 60s. What's important here, and what I think that illustrates, is that some of these issues are not new. And I think it's a mistake for us to assume that some of the reactions in the modern workplace and some of the things that we're seeing um, men in particular do in the workplace in response to, for example, Me Too, um, aren't new. And in fact, we're just a doubling down of pre-existing practices that have been around for a long, long time. Um, and I think that's important because we really need to call this out for what it is. And it's a form of, you know, in my view, it's a form of sex segregation. Um, and, and as long as we talk about it in terms of being a form of sex segregation, uh, I think that puts in a better understanding that this is the same kind of problem women saw in the 1970s and 1980s. They're just, we're just seeing it now in a different kind of light in a different context. Um, now the, the issue is in Title VII twofold. Um, Title VII, uh, courts have interpreted one provision of Title VII as requiring an adverse employment action, which means that 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 in order for an employee to bring a a actionable uh, discrimination claim under Title VII, they have to suffer something of real material consequence. Now, it's easy if they've been fired or been docked pay, right? That that's an easy case. 
What becomes less easy is when courts perceive basically uh, employees or former employees as being aggrieved over petty trivialities, um, right? So their office was moved or they were um, – you know, they, they were, they weren't invited to a birthday party, right? Things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that there is that Title VII is not a all around, all purpose civility code. Um, now I think the pen, you know, that, that if women can show that a Pence Graham rule is in place and that they are being denied the opportunity to engage in workplace activities and social functions and, uh, you know, are, are kept away from, opportunities in the workplace because they are women. Um, that's an easy, right? That should be, in my view, uh, an easy showing that there's an adverse employment action made against them uh, and, and that they have a, a Title VII claim as a result. So I do make a, 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 or put forward in the article that that's that traditional, a traditional understanding of adverse employment action should allow in this context uh, a plaintiff to go forward. What are and the, do you in this yeah. context separate out um, um, women being excluded from sort of, you know, late night working events with their male boss versus, uh, you know, not being invited over to play poker? So, so that's, that's what's interesting, right? I, I think that could be a piece of evidence, um, that there's a broader, more systemic problem in the workplace and, uh, that, that there is, you know, some form of sex segregation happening. Now, that's where, we, and again, I think that's where we get into a very tricky gray area, right? Where, what kinds of actions are just petty slights? What are just people exercising personal, um, you know, their, their personal preferences for who they associate with and, and what's a real tangible employment loss, um, an opportunity loss. Um, I think, again, it could be a piece of, of evidence in a, in a grander, um, you know, showing. Um, but what troubles me or concerns me in particular is that women, right, women might have these claims and might show in a traditional Mike Pence setting that that this kind of Pence or Graham rule has been in, in or put in place. Um, but the courts might not see it as being that, you know, that serious of a concern. Um, and that's what concerns me here. And so I offer uh, an a alternative route for plaintiffs to to bring a claim which doesn't rely on that adverse em- adverse employment um, action doctrine as much as uh, you know, the traditional claims are brought forward. And and so what I suggest here is that we we look at this as being an op you know, employment practices, which tend to deny women, uh, an opportunity for advancement and, and, and tends to deny women, um, <clears throat> equal opportunity in workplace. And there's a section in title seven, which is often underused, uh, which says that that is in fact an unlawful practice in its own right. And so that's, that's what I'm arguing for in the paper here, that we should see these uh, you know, we, that, that women who feel as if they are being mistreated and are subjected to these kinds of, uh, you know, rules of engagement, uh, or as I call them, sex quarantines, that they, they should be permitted to pursue claims under 
both theories, uh, both parts of the of the statute. And uh, that's my in doing so, I hope that judges will have the cultural competency to understand the real impact of, of what's happening here and why it is uh, an unlawful practice and why it's a form of sex segregation, not new in the wake of Me Too, but in fact, the same thing that we've seen uh, in decades past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I found this interesting. This idea that uh, I think was Section seven hundred three a two, and um, uh, you know, as you know, and um, but for the listeners, I'm not a sort of a Title seven expert by any means. Um, so you describe it as sort of uh, being sort of little used, um, and uh, I'm just I'm curious about that. So um, um, you suggest this as an alternative route, but um, is it just been a missed opportunity? What? Uh, why haven't plaintiffs' lawyers been uh, been bringing these claims, um, or why haven't they been successful so far? You know, what um, you've identified this as a possible route, but I'm just curious about why um, why it's not a sort of a well trodden route. Yeah. So um, initially, when you know when people thought about the you know, this section of, of Title Seven. A lot of, uh, or generally, it was associated with disparate, um, disparate impact claims. Sorry, um, and and when Congress revamped the uh, Title Seven in 1991, uh, they created a, an entire section dedicated to to disparate impact claims, uh, and then they left this section on its own, which should, which suggests to me. Um, that there is something more meaningful to this section than just uh, disparate impact claims, right? So, so that there, there's something here uh, that 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 uh, that Title VII provides, which is beyond uh, disparate impact, and and so. One of the things, you know, that I, you know, this, there have been a number of, of cases that have brought this, uh, you know, that have cited this section before. Um, but, you know, a lot of them were successful in the 70s when, when segregation was very easily made out, right? So that there were jobs that were for women and there, there were jobs that were set aside for men. And so you could use this section to say, well, you know, you, the employer, are segregating based on sex and are you know, that tends to deny us opportunities. And it was a much more clearer case to make um, as those kinds of very obvious forms of segregation uh, have, you know, ha- have receded from the workplace. I think that maybe it's just not been thought of as, a, as viable of an option. Um, there have been and you know plaintiffs who have brought these claims you know in recent times uh last year there was a, a case at the 7th circuit in fact that um uh, you know that that brought a it was the e, e, the EEOC brought it against AutoZone uh where a man was transferred uh from one store to another based on the racial dynamics uh, of the customers at those stores and the race of the employee um, now, there, you know, it's probably too complicated to get in that particular case too much for our purposes because I think that might be a case where bad facts made some bad law. Um, mm-hmm. But but it does illustrate that there are uh, people who are thinking about uh, right this alternative provision. The EEOC is you know is willing to bring claims under it, um, and and these are not um, right these are not disparate impact claims. They are 
individuals who are being treated uh, in an intentionally discriminatory fashion. Um, so I, I do think that this, you know, there's a lot of um, you know, there is some prospect here that that this could be uh, re- uh, reinvigorated for uh, you know these. Um, for women who feel discriminated against because there's some kind of sex quarantine in place, uh, in the, in the vein of a Mike Pence, uh, you know, Reverend Graham rule. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting case that, that you talked about. Um, I agree. We shouldn't get into the, the weeds on it, but it, it reminded me of, a there was a Freakonomics, uh, podcast not too long ago about, um, um, ethnic, uh, restaurants and how, um, that, um, um you know, um, Japanese restaurants often have um, folks who are, um, you know, generally of sort of Asian appearance, although very often not Japanese. And um, you know, um, uh, Mexican restaurants often have uh, Hispanics, although certainly not just Mexicans. Um, um, and it seems like there's uh, there's lots of environments where um, um, that sort of the, the, this case that you were discussing really um, had maybe sort of broader applicability in terms of um, potential employment discrimination. Yeah, and, and and you know what's the thing that so many of the members of the public maybe don't necessarily understand is the the intention behind uh, discriminatory acts, you know, is irrelevant, right? So you can have a benevolent motive, but that still doesn't make it any less unlawful. Um, and so you know, you can't take a you know for the most part um, a customer's preference into consideration and then make a right a racially discriminatory or sex-based discrimination uh uh you know uh, employment decision just because you you know your customers want that um and and you know in a similar sense part of the 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 discriminatory practices that i'm discussing in this paper they often are couched by the discriminating the discriminating parties right the employer um, or the supervisor as being um, right, this kind of chivalry, you know, some form of chivalry, or it is, you know, it's a form of, um, you know, you know, it's honorable, benevolent position to take that they're protecting women from would-be harassers, or they're protecting their family, or they're protecting their own reputation, um, and those justifications aren't right they aren't any better than someone who just says i don't want to hire women right it still has the same effect of denying women uh equal employment opportunities and and that right so 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 that's important i think to understand here that the justifications can be um right paint or couched in as rosy pick you know rosy of a picture as uh employers and supervisors and like want but it doesn't matter so I think that was a really interesting point too, because I, I do agree that it seems to be couched this way that you know we need to protect women from, but f- you know, but from what? I mean, I think the argument is really like we're protecting women from their sort of undeniable attraction to these very powerful male figures, right? Like that's it's. I think you said this earlier that um, that um, it's suggesting that these women, you know, uh, but for the protection of being exclu- being excluded from. Uh, workplace events or sort of late nights with their male bosses would, uh, I'm not sure what, sort of throw themselves at their male bosses. Um, um, And so it seems like um, they are not just um, sort of excluding women, but are sort of, um, you know, in some sense, glorifying their own sort of attractiveness to their female employees. Yeah. So, so the, the one point I try to make in the paper, and I I think I've done a better job in, in a 
future draft, um, is to talk about the animating ideology um, that seems to have perhaps uh, come into greater um, clarity in the post-Me Too uh, era. And that is this idea of ambivalent sexism. We often think about sexism as either being purely hostile or purely benevolent, right? So hostile sexism being, we don't want women here. Women don't belong in this kind of job. So therefore we won't hire women. Um, benevolent sexism being more along the lines of, we must protect women as men and we must have, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, it, it's, it's, it's more condescending in nature, right? Uh, and paternalistic. And this form, uh, you know, the, 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 the discriminatory practices that eventually erect these defensive glass ceilings um, are really at dead center at the intersection of hostile and, um, and, and uh, benevolent sexism. Because what they're saying is, is, right, we have all these negative stereotypes about women, Women are, you know, they're temper, temptresses, and women will report, you know, make false reports against men. And uh, right, women are irresistible, and they will use uh, their sexuality to get ahead at the expense of men. Um, at the same time, the justifications for keeping women away aren't really couched in those right hostile. Uh, you know, those hostile stereotypes, but it's more along the lines of, well, we are doing this to protect our own reputation and, and to keep our wives happy and safe and to keep women safe from harassers. Um, right. So, so they're, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, in a sense, right. Where they're doing something that is outright hostile and they're using benevolent justifications, um, right. To kind of paper over the, or at least what they think is to attempt to paper over, um, those, those stereotypes, which are animating the, right. The, this, this hostile work environment. So I think it's, it's really quite interesting to see how that dynamic has played out, particularly again, in the wake of the me too movement. Um, it seems that, the fear that men have, which are, you know, motivated by the hostile forms of sexism, have led to a much more openness using these uh, benevolent justifications, which I, I'm just almost shocked at how open some people have been in, in professing why these, uh, these kinds of practices are either, you know, okay or, and acceptable or even just outright laudable and should be widely adopted. Right. Well, I mean, I, you know, one possibility is that they're not getting penalized for doing so. And so they're like, you know, they believe their, uh, their own message. Um, the thing that you were saying, this gets into one of my sort of my last questions, because I know Brian likes to keep these, um, um, around 40 minutes long, um, is the point that you, that you raise, which is that, um, that it, it is not okay to discriminate against somebody, um, uh, because of a fear that uh, that you know your spouse has that they will sort of tempt you with these sort of late night meetings or sort of that you know if you're out uh, late at a work dinner or far away and having a drink that something will happen. Um, but uh, you do make very clear that it is okay to discriminate against somebody that uh, that uh, you uh, that is or was a a former lover. Uh, and I find that really interesting that so that discrimination against someone that you, for example, have had sex with is okay, but someone uh, that you want to or that you think might want to have sex with you, that is not okay. So can you talk a little bit more about 
um, why why this distinction? Why would it be okay to discriminate against somebody uh, where there has been uh, whether they were, say, a former lover, for example? Yeah. So, so I'll say from the from the start, I would categorize those kinds of uh, employment practices as not cool but lawful, um, <laughs> and um, you know because. A lot of times, some of the you know they're just jilted lovers who are who are taking out their you know their their lovers' quarrel um, in in the workplace, right? And and oftentimes firing or demoting or really harming um, you know a, a former lover uh, in the workplace in a way that that's you know not really. Um, laudable, right? It's not something we want to raise up. But there's a couple of differences between that and some of these other things that uh, employers are doing, which I have deemed unlawful. Um, You know, the first is, you know, are these things because of sex, right? Is it because solely because of the individual sex? And I think the answer is no, right? That the, the reason for the motivation um, is not because it's just a woman doing and being penalized for something a man, you know, otherwise would not get penalized for. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's because she, um, or he, depending on the situation, mm-hmm. entered a relationship that went bad and, right, there's negative consequences to that. So, so that's one, you know, one, you know, fundamental aspect of it. Um, the second thing is they're, they're not, they're different in the sense that they're not imposing generally a structural, um, barrier to, you know, progress for, or, you know, to, to equal opportunity for women. Um, now there is sometimes, and, and this is tangentially related, um, if, for example, there's an expectation that all women in, in the workplace, um, have a sexual relationship, uh, with a supervisor in order to maintain their job or to get ahead, right? And and it's not quid pro quo, but it's kind of an understood that you need to do this in order to be successful here. Now that is that should be actionable because that's that's different, right? It's it's not um, it's not really wanted in the same sense, and it's not structural, or it is structural in the sense that you can't get ahead in that company unless unless you do it. Um, you know, but but I think that's that's the big difference, right? Um, you know, these other are situations are kind of one-offs where it's just a relationship gone bad. It's not because of sex. It's not defensive in the same way that these other things are defensive. Um, it's you know, it's it's because someone's feelings were hurt. And as as much as we should discourage that kind of, you know, retribution being taken out on, uh, you know, former, you know, lovers and, and people that we have intimate relationships in the workplace. And there's, I think, a whole conversations that can be had about whether there should be rules against that in the first place. Um, you know, they're, they're just of a fundamentally different character than, than the kinds of things we're talking about here. But I think it's important in the paper to discuss them because, um, because when you are talking about, Particularly, you know, uh, the idea of of spousal jealousy, um, it gets confused or complicated, right? That people kind of mix up, uh, you know, spouses who are jealous, but for no particular reason, right? They can't articulate why they're jealous. They just don't like the presence of a, of a man or a woman in the workplace engaging in the kinds of associations that they're engaging with, versus someone who's actually crossed the line and and entered a sexual relationship. Uh, that was, 
you know, both voluntary and wanted by them. And, and so I, I, I take care, um, to, to cabin that off and say, that's a different issue. And here is why. Great. Well, I, thanks. That, that, that's helpful. Um, so we are um, about out of time, um, but I um, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to interview you in particular, even though this is outside my area, is that I know that you are um, going to be going uh, on the market again um, um, this uh, summer um, uh, and into the fall. And so, um, you know, curious if you would just spend uh, a minute to talk a little bit about, um, um, you know, your what, what you're hoping to where you're hoping to be, what you're hoping to do, where, um, as you know, take a minute to sort of pitch yourself. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've, it's, I guess I always get asked the, the geography question. I'm happy to go anywhere. Um, lived every, you know, I lived everywhere all, you know, for, for the last you know, few years, been in Chicago, lived in the South, lived in the Northeast and, uh, you know, looking forward to starting somewhere new and having a new adventure. So that's, that's that. Um, you know, but, but I think, you know, the one thing I, I, I love about my time here at, uh, in Chicago, Kent in particular, um, is I, I've, you know, I love teaching employment discrimination and that's certainly something that I hope to do, um, wherever I go next. But I, I, I think the one thing that someone can't get necessarily off my far form or off my CV or maybe even off my Twitter, although my Twitter might be a little bit more um, revealing in this is that I really do value uh, a sense of community. Um, I, you know, I love my scholarship, my, particularly when I've done archival research uh, with, you know, the PhD background, especially um, I just thrive in that environment. And I, I just, my research and my writing gives me, uh, so much satisfaction, but you know the the thing that I, I I get even more satisfaction of beyond my scholarship is just uh, teaching and being in the classroom and forging uh, really a nice rapport with my students and getting to know them and, and invest in them and invest in the law schools that I've you know, been at and in the communities I'm in and I think that one thing I hope I'm leaving Chicago Kent with um, is that I or one thing I hope that I can do or say that I that I've done as I leave Kent and go on to my, my tenure track position is that I've left Kent a better place. Um, and that my students were better off for having me and that faculty members are, you know, their research was better for, for my being present and that the community at large was a, a more enjoyable, thoughtful and uh, productive place for, for my being there. And um, I hope that's what I bring to wherever I go. Uh, because the teaching responsibilities will be what they will, and the research agenda, uh, you know, is going to continue to be law and social change, and all, you know, oftentimes talking about LGBT rights and, and other issues. But uh, the one thing that will be uh, fundamentally me and never change is my 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 thirst to really be part of a community and and to contribute to it in a really robust way. Thanks. That's great. I mean, I feel like so often uh, people, when you're on the market, talk about uh, your scholarship as if it's the only thing that matters. Uh, and something I certainly really value at Howard. Um, and um, uh, I've enjoyed getting the chance to uh, talk with you uh, today about uh, defensive glass ceilings, uh, but also uh, more generally and look forward to um, perhaps seeing you at the, um, the annual Chicagoland conference coming up. Um, but uh, again, one way or another soon. So thanks so much for, for joining me today. Um, and um, um, I'll look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Well, thanks for having me and I've enjoyed it. Wonderful.
Lucky Strike was the first company to advertise for women customers. Their posters showed attractive women, and the slogan, Reach for a cigarette, not for a sweet. Their sales skyrocketed by 215%, and they became the nation's best-selling cigarette in just two years. Women eventually had their own brand of cigarettes, called Virginia Slims, with their slogan, You've come a long way, baby. As a matter of fact, the last commercial for cigarettes shown on television before cigarette advertisements were banned was a Virginia Slims commercial that was shown on The Tonight Show. You've come a long way, baby. Virginia Slims. This is the taste for today's woman. With rich Virginia flavor you'll like. Tailored slim for your hands, for your lips. Virginia Slims. 